Well, we come together every Sunday to focus on the Lord, to worship, to put our attention on God's Word and on God's plan for our lives. Our Lord said in John 4 that a time would come, when, which is now, when we would worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. The That which distinguishes the spiritual life of the church-age believer is our walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says that we are to walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. But when we sin and we're walking according to the flesh, we need to recover. We need to restore our relationship, our ongoing fellowship with God, that we might enjoy that fellowship, and that God the Holy Spirit would be uh, taking an active uh, role in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I open in prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we can come together this morning to focus our attention upon you, that we might uh, glorify you as we sing praises to you and reflect upon the birth of our Savior at this time of year through the hymns that we sing. And Father, we pray that as we focus upon uh, the last uh, day on and on the earth for our Lord and hypostatic union before the crucifixion, that we can realize this is the purpose for his birth, for his entry into the world. And this is why we celebrate his birth, is because we celebrate his death and resurrection. Father, we're thankful for this congregation, for everyone here and their desire to know your word, to study your word, and to let it be a vital part of their uh, their life, their spiritual life, and their spiritual growth. Father, we pray for our missionaries. We pray for the Myers and Small Yards in, in Ukraine. We pray for Chafer Seminary. We pray for students for this new term for Chafer Seminary and an increasing outreach as we continue to hear uh, more and more discouraging reports about those who, about schools that are seeing decreased enrollment, uh, laying off large numbers of, of faculty, and less and less of an interest among believers in serving you and learning uh, to know you through an enhanced and increased uh, education. Father, we pray for us that we might continue to focus upon you and be faithful in our spiritual walk. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We emailed out a link again this morning for the scripture reading. And as I've said in the previous lessons, what we have done is to uh, combine the readings in the gospel accounts during this last period of the trials and the death, crucifixion of our Lord, so that uh, you can get a full picture of what is portrayed uh, in the gospel accounts. So I'm going to try to have these um, up every week and so that you can uh, print them out. They're on the website associated with the lesson, so you can print them out and then read along with me. Uh, for example, uh, last time, in the last lesson, most of it came out of Matthew, but in this lesson, most of it comes out of, or a good section of it, comes out of the Gospel of John. 
So the reading for today relates to the fourth and fifth trial of our Lord. Uh, begins, uh, opens in Matthew chapter uh, 27, verses 1 and 2. Then it will shift down to verse 11 if you're just reading along in Matthew. Otherwise, if you're reading through the scripture I've given you, then I'll begin at the beginning. Immediately, early in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and the whole multitude of them led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium and delivered him to Pilate. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, and Pilate, the governor, asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that Pilate the governor marveled greatly. Then the John passage, actually as I reflected on this this morning, I would move this up before the Matthew account. John 18.34, Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, He sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, 
because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's ask his guidance and direction on our study together. Our Father, we're thankful for this time that we can study your word, that we can come to understand what transpired at the time of our Lord's arrest. We can come to understand the issues behind that arrest and the charges brought against him and the way in which this displays so often the reaction of fallen man to your grace. Father, we pray that as we study, we may not only have a greater understanding of what transpired in the events leading up to the cross, we can understand also how you have given us confirmatory evidence of these things and the truth of these things, And, Father, that our faith may be strengthened and that we may be uh, motivated by God the Holy Spirit and your word to pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. And if you wish, you can take a marker, a piece of paper, or something like that, and stick Stick it over in John 18, because we'll be moving back and forth primarily between those two passages. We'll look at what Mark and Luke say about these events as well, but primarily we're going to be looking at these these verses. Now, on the title slide has erroneous scripture on it, but the title is correct. This is the Roman trials, numbers 4 and 5, that we are uh, looking at today. So just as we have been studying through these trials of Jesus, I pointed out that there are uh, two broad events that take place that are sometimes classified as just basically two broad trials. Others say, no, there's six trials. But in either case, depending on how your understanding of the uh, jurisprudence is at that particular time, we have six different events, six different hearings before uh, different authorities. The first three are religious trials, uh, and the second three are civil or criminal trials. The first three occur before the 
power behind the high priest, Annas, who had been high priest, and he was deposed, and the current high priest was his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And then uh, he goes from Annas, who described in John 18, 12 to 14, to Caiaphas, described in Matthew 26, 57 to 68. And then they will uh, pull together a trial to cover their illegalities, and that's described in Matthew 27, 1 and 2. We have covered those, and now we're starting the civil or criminal trial. This is done under the authority of the Roman uh, prefect, who is Pontius Pilate. There are, again, three stages or three trials, first before Pilate, second before Herod Antipas, and then third, coming back to Pilate and the final uh, verdict and condemnation of of Jesus. So that's the basic uh, setup that is uh, going on here. And we've looked at the first set of trials, the religious trials, and seen that Jesus was handed over to the religious leaders who violated uh, at least 22 different laws that they had established to protect the innocent. Now, these laws are not codified for another couple of hundred years in the Mishnah, but we, they, that, that organization of the Mishnah that occurs by Judah the Prince, known as Judah Hanasi, uh, he is, um, when he codifies it, he's not making these things up. Often you'll hear people get into a debate over this, scholars in debate, and when uh, the accusation is made that these trials were illegal, they'll say, well, that's based on something that's written down 200 years later. But what is codified by, by uh, Judah the Prince had been part of their oral tradition for over... 300 years, long before the time of Christ. And so these principles, for the most part, were already in effect. They were designed, all of these laws were designed to protect the innocent. The concept that that an accused person is innocent until proven guilty is embedded within the Mosaic law. And that is where we get that idea in American law. This is why we honor the Ten Commandments. There's been uh, a number of uh, challenges to uh, the pre- uh, presence of, of uh, either sculptures or paintings reflecting the Ten Commandments in various courtrooms. And it's rather hip- hypocritical because if you go to the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C., you will see that there are uh, statues, that there are paintings, and that there's a sculptor on the on the facades of the uh, Supreme Court building itself that reflect the giving of the law to Moses. This is not a theological statement. It is a historical statement that the Mosaic Law, as it entered into a Western civilization via Judaism and Christianity, that Judeo-Christian heritage, that that forms the foundation of our understanding of law and this principle of innocence until being proven guilty. 
A number of laws were violated. I gave, there's a handout a couple of lessons back that uh, is compri- compiled from what uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum has, 22 different laws that were violated. One of these is that there were to be no trials before the morning sacrifice, and they've already had two, and that's why the third trial is to give legitimacy to what they had done illegally during the night. Uh, another law that was violated was that there were to be no secret trials, only public trials, and yet the first two trials or hearings were done in private under the cover of darkness, uh, which was also a violation of the law. A third law that was violated was that during the trial, the defense was to have the first word before the prosecutor. So Jesus was to have the first word. And what we see is that they begin accusing him and trying to find uh, uh, witnesses that will agree with one another to in their accusation of Jesus. Uh, that was another law that was violated. There were to be, according to the Mosaic law, two or three witnesses, and their testimonies had to agree in every detail. And they kept trying to find and bribe witnesses, and they just couldn't agree in every detail. And we saw how finally the, a couple of them got close, so Caiaphas stood up, tore his robe, which was also a violation of the law, uh, in order to uh, feign his absolutely self-righteous uh, arrogance and contempt for Jesus and then uh, express that he had committed blasphemy, which he had not. Another rule that was broken was that a person could not be condemned solely on the basis of their own words, which was what transpired in that uh, second trial. And then the last one I'm reviewing is that the sentence could only be pronounced, a capital sentence could only be pronounced three days after the guilty verdict. And, of course, we're seeing that they announce they come together for the third trial, that they uh, come to the conclusion that Jesus is guilty and worthy of death, and then they immediately take Jesus to Pilate in order to get him condemned to death. So all of this is a violation of the law. Uh, after they uh, attempted to give a veneer of legality to that uh, to their decision, they took Jesus to um, they took Jesus to Pilate. This is the plot that is mentioned in Matthew 27, uh, 1 and 2, as well as in Mark 15, 1 and Luke 23, 1 and John 16, 28. This is the passage that I read during scripture reading as I brought these together. We'll break it down in a minute, but uh, Mark always starts with this word immediately. Mark is younger. He's in a hurry all the time. That's one of the characteristics of his uh, writing is he says, and immediately this happened, and immediately that happened. And so when you read through the Gospel of Mark, you could circle all of the immediately's, and, and by the time you get through with Mark, you're kind of huffing and puffing because you're out of breath because you've been running all the way through 14 chapters. And he says, immediately, early in the morning, so this is right at sunrise, so they could legitimize this decision, the chief priests held a consultation 
with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Now, not all of the Gospels indicate everybody that's there. That comes from Mark's account and tells us of all of the religious leaders were involved in this conspiracy to find Jesus guilty and to crucify him. He says they bound Jesus and the whole multitude of them led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium and delivered him to Pilate, but they themselves did not go into the Praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So we're told in Matthew 27, verse 1, uh, the basics of this that covers that that uh, last decision and their decision to take him to, to Pilate. Now, a couple of observations as we look at the comparison of these accounts. When we look at the account of Luke, after Pilate first states that he found no fault in Jesus, only Luke tells us about a, tr- a trial where Jesus is taken to Herod Antipas. And so that tells us that, that these other two accounts sort of conflate what happens, and you see a, a, an interview with, with a Pilate that takes place with Jesus, and then it immediately goes into the story of the related to the release of Barabbas. And um, that is the Aramaic word. The Hebrew is been something. For example, uh, uh, Jacob's last son is named Benjamin, son of my right hand. The Ben means son. So when you have that, that word in Hebrew, Ben something, always indicates son of. The Aramaic form of that is Bar. So when you have uh, Bar Abbas, then his name is son of Abbas. That's how we pronounce it. When you talk about Mahmoud Abbas, who's the leader of the Palestinians, that's the same name, Abbas. So his name was Bar Abbas, son of Abbas. And according to uh, various uh, ancient manuscripts that have a textual variant in here, his name, his first name was Yeshua. So we will look at that next time, which Jesus are you following? That will make a good Christmas message. So that comes after, that actually comes when we compare the text, that actually comes in the last uh, trial just before Jesus' uh, condemnation. So the trial of Herod comes between John chapter uh, 1838 and uh, 39. 39 is where it entered, John introduces the Bar Abbas uh, incident, incident. Now, as we look at these trials, a couple of things that we should keep in mind, just in terms of their application or implication for us. First of all, these two Broad trials, the religious trial and the civil trial, represent the reaction of most human beings to Jesus. The religious trials represent the reaction of religion to the truth as they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness based on Romans 1, 18 to 21. And in the second set of trials, the civil or criminal trials, we have Pilate asking Jesus that somewhat cynical question, 
what is truth. The civil trials represent what is often the secular reaction or response to the claims of Jesus. Second thing to observe is that in the religious trial, we see what happens when a person has rejected the truth. Once they are convicted and they re, then they react emotionally. And this is what has happened with the religious leaders. They, trust me, they are under conviction of the truth. They know what they are doing. They know that what they are doing is illegal. That's why they convene that third trial after sunup is so that they can give it a veneer of legality. And yet, they are reacting in anger to the truth. This is often what happens in a culture that has rejected the truth. We can give lots of examples of that from our own culture as we see more and more uh, atheists and secularists who, under the cover of a continued uh, decrease in, uh, in Christianity in our culture, they now feel comfortable uh, coming out and making various hostile statements about Christians. This is what goes along with negative volition and a rejection of the gospel. And when people have their, uh, their facade of righteousness uh, exposed, they react in hatred, they react in anger, they react in uh, bitterness because they know that God exists. That's Romans 1. God uh, made it, made the truth his existence evident to them because it was evident within them. Every human being knows God exists. Every every human being knows the truth. But there are those who in negative volition, which comprises most of humanity, are suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. So we see a picture of what happens here in that hostile, emotional reaction uh, to the gospel. The question for each of us as human beings as we look at these trials is what is your verdict on Jesus Christ? Was he an evildoer? That is the accusation that the Sanhedrin, that the chief priests bring before Pilate, not the accusation of blasphemy, which is what they decided in their trial, but they know that that charge won't carry any weight with the secular uh, criminal judicial system of Rome, so they change the charge. And the charge is that he's an evildoer. Was he an evildoer? Was he a misguided religious teacher? Or was he innocent of all of the charges that were brought against him? Or was he who he claimed to be? Was he the Messiah? Was he the Son of Man, the perfect God-man who came into the world to die on the cross for our sins? This is the classic argument that was organized by C.S. Lewis called Lord, Liar, or Lunatic, which has been used by many people. It's an excellent um, uh, systemization of the argument, and that is Jesus doesn't leave us room to conclude that he was a good man because he's either uh, a liar and therefore an evildoer because he's telling people that he is the only way to God. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John fourteen six, he is saying, I am 
the truth. He is claiming to be the personification of absolute truth as the incarnation of God. And so if he's either telling the truth or he's misleading uh, millions, if not billions of people into trusting in a lie for their eternal salvation. So he's either a liar or he's a lunatic, but he can't be just simply a good man. And so we're left by saying that then, therefore, he must be exactly who he claimed to be, the promised prophesied Messiah who died on the cross for our sins. And this reminds us of a passage we're studying in First Peter on Thursday night, First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So as we look at what is going on in Matthew, we'll start there, we see the plot, the consultation, the conspiracy that is explained in Matthew 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, what I want to do on this next slide is add to it the verses from Matthew, excuse me, from Mark and from Luke. As you can see, the Luke verse is down at the bottom. That's very short. He doesn't say nearly as much as either Matthew or Mark. Mark says immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation. Now, if you're looking at your English version, it reads one way in Mark. It reads another way in Matthew. It what you would think that you've got two different words there. Yesterday, I was uh, at a conversation with uh, uh, Tommy Ice. All of you know who Dr. Ice is and longtime friend. And we were talking about something that had happened with regard to when he teaches. He goes and speaks in all kinds of different churches. And he says, but, but nobody ever asked me the questions they ask at your church. At your church, they will always ask, well, what does the Greek say? What does the Hebrew say? And see, when you look at this, and as I looked at it in the English, I went, well, wait a minute, what's the difference there between plotting and having a consultation? And actually, there is no difference. It's exactly the same phraseology in both uh, Matthew and Mark, and it refers to having a, a, a group of people coming together to make a decision. They are making a, a formal counsel. Now, why are they plotting? They are plotting because it is obvious that they want a death penalty, but they can't come, but their charge of blasphemy won't hold any water for a Roman prefect. They cannot convince him that this is a crime worthy of death, so they have to come up with a charge that will uh, hold water before uh, Pilate. So they have this consultation, and it involves the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin, including elders and scribes, chief priests, all of them. It seems to be, according to uh, Matthew and Mark, that the chief priests seem to be the chief organizers of this. 
and we're told that there's the chief priests and elders by Matthew, but Mark tells us it involves the elders, scribes, and the whole council. So they're all involved. Now, Luke just makes it simple. He just says the whole multitude, the whole crowd, all of them that were involved in these uh, three trials of Jesus are all uh, plotting, and they are going to uh, tell take Jesus uh, to Pilate. Now, remember what their charge was. Earlier in Matthew 26, 63 through 66, we see that in the second trial before Caiaphas, Caiaphas became impatient. He hears uh, what Jesus has said, and he says, addresses Jesus directly and says, tell us if you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus affirms that. He says, it's as you said, you're right. That is exactly what I am saying. So Jesus makes it clear that he is claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and that is what they condemned him for. And this is when Caiaphas tears his robe in uh, verse 65 and screams out, he's spoken blasphemy, and turns to the Sanhedrin and says, now he has, you have heard his blasphemy, you are witnesses of his blasphemy, and it's not blasphemy, because blasphemy was taking the name of God in an empty manner, using the name of God in a wrong way. He never utters the name of God, so it's a a manufactured charge, and yet they are going to make it that he is deserving of death. So they bind him, and they take him to uh, to Pilate, and uh, this is where there will be the accusation. Now, yesterday Tommy told me a story about a group of elementary kids that were given an art assignment to draw the Christmas story. And so various pictures came in of the manger and the nativity. And one kid had drawn a picture of an airplane with four figures on the airplane. And so the teacher called him up and said, who in the world are these? Why do you have an airplane and who are these people? And, and the little boy said, well, this is a picture of Jesus' flight to Egypt. And she said, well, who are, who are the, the people on the plane? And she said, well, it's Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus. She said, well, who's the, who's the fourth one? She, he said, that's Pontius the Pilate. <laughs> so they're taking Jesus to Pontius Pilate. We don't know his first name. That was his family name and his, uh, his praenomen and his cognomen, but we don't know his actual name. Uh, there's a lot that we don't know about Pilate. There are various legends about uh, him. There were various uh, Aryan legends that developed. It's really interesting to trace all of the different uh, uh, ways in which Pilate has been viewed down through the centuries. Some view him as evil. Others view him as uh, being quite innocent of Jesus' blood. Uh, and so we get these different views in history. By the in the first century, the early church understood that he is as culpable for the death of Jesus, and the Romans are as culpable for the crucifixion of Jesus as the Jewish religious leaders. But by the middle of the second century, the uh, image of Pilate gets 
overhauled and a little historical and theological revisionism comes into play. And Tertullian, who gave us the nomenclature for the Trinity, the word Trinitas, thinks that Pilate is completely innocent. He is the good guy in the whole scenario. The last thing he wants to do is crucify Jesus. And so he's really the good guy. And so for a number of centuries, Pilate is viewed very positively. But what does that tell us? It tells us that the, something else was going on, and in the mid-2nd century, you started having the rise of Christian anti-Semitism. And so they are beginning to blame the Jews for the death of Jesus, and that all Jews are culpable for the death of Jesus. Uh, for example, we saw from uh, the earlier uh, passage last week, the claim that all, uh, are, we'll see this, excuse me, with Barabbas, uh, coming up that they take this, make this statement that his blood be on us and our children. And so that's taken out of context and is used to justify Christian anti-Semitism, which is totally wrong. So with the rise of blaming the Jews, you're going to take any culpability away from uh, Pontius Pilate. So there's a lot of things that are, are interesting and things that are going on there. So Pilate comes out. He is the prefect. We'll look at what that means in just a minute. He goes out to the religious leaders, and he asks the question, what accusation do you bring against this man? The other gospel accounts have summarized what happens. John gives us a fuller account and shows the legality of what's transpiring in this trial. It is necessary to bring someone into court to, to first articulate their accusation. So as John records it, the first thing that happens is that Pilate comes out of the uh, praetorium. Now, according to John... Uh, earlier, the Jewish leaders did not enter into the praetorium. And there's a lot of discussion about the praetorium. The praetorium was the seat of the governor, wherever the governor was, and the praetorium actually was in Caesarea by the sea. This is where the Roman prefect had lived and where he had his uh, where he had his uh, official residence and where he conducted business, but during these feast days, he would come to uh, come to come to Rome. Now, for many years, uh, the tradition was that the uh, Praetorium was in the location of the Fortress Antonio, named for Mark Antony, which is in the uh, northwest on the northwest corner of the temple compound. It was elevated so that the Roman soldiers could watch what was going on in the temple compound. But recent archaeological discoveries have given much greater support to the view that this was not where Pilate would have stayed. He would have stayed at a place where he would have had uh, much greater creature comforts. He would have stayed on the western side of the uh, of the old city of Jerusalem near what is today the da- Citadel of David and the Jaffa Gate and this was where uh, he stayed it was uh, as part of Herod's palace that was located there and it would have been a much more uh, grand surroundings 
And that makes a lot of sense because this was the same area where Caiaphas and Annas lived so that they're not taking Jesus from one side of the city to the other side of the city and then back again, traipsing back and forth on the route that is known as the Via Dolorosa or the Way of Tears. That is what many uh, pilgrims to Jerusalem follow that route, but historically that has uh, little or no uh, no support. And so uh, Jesus is taken to the Praetorium where Pilate had his uh, would have had his uh, temporary residence, and the chief priests, the religious leaders, aren't going to go in. It is prohibited, according to their tradition, for a Jew to go into the home of a Gentile for just about any reason, but this would render them ceremonially unclean, and so they never went into a Gentile's home. This is seen in uh, Acts, in Acts chapter 10 and 11 when Peter goes to the home of Cornelius the centurion uh, that's why God had to lower the, the the sheet with all of the unclean animals and everything because he's telling uh Peter that Gentiles are now and and the the dietary laws and all of this is no longer in effect and so it's okay for him to go into the home of a Gentile. Well, this is the background. This is why the religious leaders wouldn't go into the praetorium. They are going to still be celebrating Passover that night according to the Judean calendar of observance, and so they do not want to become uh, ceremonially defiled uh, so that they can still have their uh, Passover that night. So Pilate is forced to come out and go back in, go out, come back in several several times. Tracing that movement uh, between the Gospels is uh, a little bit difficult. So they began to accuse him in Luke 23, 2, and said, we found this fellow perverting the nation. So they're accusing him of treason, not blasphemy, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. So they're going to accuse him of tax evasion, that he is disloyal, uh, to Caesar and that he's making himself out to be a king. So their, their charge is that he is committing treason against Caesar. He's going to instigate a rebellion, which was a, a, um, a crime that was punishable by death. So, uh, he goes out to him in John 1830. Uh, they are said to add to that, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. So that is a that statement itself is a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus made, showing that he is a true prophecy. The word there that is translated delivered up is the Greek word paradidomi, and it has a range of meaning. So sometimes you'll see it translated delivered, sometimes given over, sometimes betrayed. It depends on the context how it's going to be translated. But Jesus had uh, predicted this. As far back as Matthew 16:21, he had indicated that he would go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. There he just said he would be killed. But he added that he would be raised on the third day. In Matthew 17:22, he said that he would be betrayed, paradidomi, handed over into the hands of men. In Matthew 20:18, he told and 19, he told his disciples that the 
uh, son of man will be betrayed, paradidomi, given over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, which is what happened in the third trial, and then deliver him to the Gentiles, paradidomi again, which is what's happening here, to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And we will see that that happens under both Herod Antipas in the fifth trial and then with Pontius Pilate in the sixth trial. Matthew 26, 2, Jesus said after the day after the triumphal uh, or the day after the Olivet Discourse, he said, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Once again, paradidomi. That same word was used of, of uh, Judas Iscariot and in Matthew 26, 15 and 16, as he is betraying the Lord, uh, working out his deal for 30 pieces of silver with the Sanhedrin, uh, he says to them in Matthew 26:15, "What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you, paradidomi?" And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. There's paradidomi again. So Jesus in um, uh, John is making a clear statement of of his. Uh, I mean, the, the statement in John rather is cl- showing that he is. Uh, fulfilling prophecy that he has has made. So we're told of Pilate's response as he goes back and he interrogates Jesus, and so we need to understand a little bit about this man, Pontius Pilate. There's not a whole lot of information. Secular sources give us some insights. There's uh, Philo of Alexandria who lives at about the same time, and he has some uh, historical writings that uh, confirm the existence of Pontius Pilate. Uh, the problem with that is that he is extremely hostile to Pilate, so we have to take that into consideration, but he gives us information. Josephus does, it what, does as well, and there's a few other things, but beyond that, we don't know a whole lot about Pontius Pilate. He was the prefect of Judea, which is a term that is a, uh, translated into the Greek, it comes across as governor, and he is the proper authority to hear uh, the charges against Jesus. Initially, he dismissed the trial after his initial uh, interrogation of Jesus. He uh, recognizes that he has no fault. He has not done anything worthy of death. But he knows he is in a bind. He is under uh, pressure to keep order in Judea. And if he angers the, um, the, the religious leaders and there's a religious riot, then word will get back to Rome and there will be uh, consequent problems. So he decides to, to pass the buck and he's going to send Jesus to Herod Antipas, who is not the... Uh, ruler over uh, Judea, but is the ruler over Galilee. Here is a chart of trying to keep the Herods straight. Herod the Great, who was the uh, king of Judea at the time of Jesus' birth, lives from 37, according to the 
lot of traditional chronology. He doesn't die until four, but there's a lot of evidence now that is being used to indicate that he doesn't die until 2 B.C., and that that is therefore the date of Jesus rather than 4 B.C., which I think has some really good support. Uh, he is His kingdom is split up, and his son, Herod Archelaus, is identified as the ethnarch, that's a title for a rulership of a smaller area, and he reigns over Judea from 4 B.C. to 686, and the problem with him is he's just totally incompetent, he's removed from his office. He's going to be replaced by these prefects, these Roman governors who are then going to rule over uh, this area, and so from 6 until 41, which is a period of about 35 or 36 years, uh, when you have Herod Agrippa ruling, you have seven different prefects. Then from 44 to 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, you have seven more. So that first group of seven, uh, Pontius Pilate is in power the longest, even though he's presented as being very cruel and in some ways uh, incompetent. Uh, Pilate is uh, politically savvy, and he is a prefect longer than anybody else. So this uh, this tells us something, uh, a little bit of something about his character. We know that he existed also because we have inscriptional evidence. If you go to Israel with me, one of the first places we go is Caesarea by the Sea, which is where uh, Paul was later imprisoned. Uh, that's described in Acts under Felix and Festus, but this was the seat of Pontius Pilate's uh, uh, prefecture, and they have discovered a stone that is located there at um, they have a, a mock-up of it there at, at uh, uh, Caesarea by the Sea, and the original is in the uh, Israel Museum. And they're just partially uh, restored here. You can see I've got a better picture of that. I'll show you in just a minute. But the inscription reads, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, And then they've supplied a couple of words, erected a building dedicated, and then it says to, and then uh, they would uh, insert the phrase, the emperor, uh, Tiberius. So this gives us uh, historical verification that Pontius Pilate uh, existed. This is a nice little graphic. They provide in, um, in Lagos that enables us to see more clearly what is written there, uh, mentioning uh, Caesar Tiberius. Uh, you see the name Pontius Pilate. Uh, you see the title, excuse me, the title uh, prefect, and this, then the word for dedication here. This is what it actually looks like. This is a picture from the Israel Museum, and you can read Tiberius here. You can read part of Pilate right here, Pontius, the N, the U, the S, and then the P-I-L-A-T-E there. So that uh, is documentation of the existence of Pontius, uh, Pontius Pilate. In Rome, there were three different types of Roman provinces. There was the senatorial province, which was administered by the Roman Senate. 
There were imperial provinces, which were administered by, directly by the Roman emperor or his uh, representatives. And then there were provinces that were formed from client kingdoms. This is a third class that is ruled uh, by these prefects. And the prefects would have come from the class of Romans known as uh, uh, equates, and they were like the knights of the empire. And uh, Judea was in this class, and and, um, uh, Pontius Pilate would have come out of that sort of upper middle class of Roman uh, Roman citizens, not the senatorial class of Roman Roman citizens. And he's referred to in most translations as a governor, which is based on the Greek word hegemon, where we get our word hegemony. Okay, that's a word that's talking about a collection of states that are organized together. So we might think about the former Soviet bloc as a hegemony. So it's uh, this this government, and he was... Uh, the longest reigning of the seven prefects in that first period. Now, we're also going to be introduced to Herod Agrippa, and here's a, it's always difficult to keep all the Herods associated. You have Herod the Great, and he has three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and, and, and Philip. And Philip is the tetrarch northeast in the far north of Galilee. Archelaus was the ethnarch in Judea, but he's ousted in 6 A.D. And then you have Antipas. He's the longest ruling. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist. He is the Herod that's mentioned throughout all of the Gospels. And he is not a ruler in Judea, but he would be there for the feast days. And he is the tetrarch or the ruler over Galilee and Perea. Perea was the area over what we would call Jordan uh, today. So that helps you put those things uh, into proper perspective and and proper uh, proper order. Now, one of the things we know about Pilate is he was not a diplomat. He was not diplomatic at all. He didn't understand uh, much about the Jews. And he had committed a number of, uh, shall we say, diplomatic uh, faux pas, the most, one of the most serious of which was that when he first took power, he decided to do something to honor Tiberius, and so they made these images of Tiberius, which they affixed to the uh, uh, posts and the guidons of the Roman legions, and then he had the, his Roman legions march into uh, Jerusalem with these uh, images of Tiberius. That, of course, violated the Second Commandment, which was a prohibition against making carved images. It upset all of the Jewish hierarchy. They sent an enormous contingent of leaders to uh, Caesarea to uh, talk to uh, Pilate. And after six days, uh, Pilate became impatient, and he sent his armed soldiers in amongst this crowd of Jews with the threat that if they would not go home, then they would be beheaded. The Jews immediately responded in mass by pulling down their robes, bearing their necks, and leaning over and said, go ahead, behead us. And so Pilate thought a little bit better of this, that he wasn't going to start an insurrection, and so he backed away. But that was just the first of several different incidences. Luke 13, 1-2 describes another incident where he ordered an attack on a group of Galileans on the Temple Mount, 
and shed their blood and killed many of them. So he's not well loved as a uh, prefect. Eventually, uh, he is uh, removed from power because of an incident in up on Mount Gerizim or at the base of Mount Gerizim where he ordered the deaths of a group of Samaritans who were following one of their prophets and were attempting to ascend Mount Gerizim to worship at their temple in violation of of, um, of a Roman uh, law. So that's when he's deposed. Uh, Herod Antipas is uh, eventually going to... Uh, be dealt a blow by the justice of God. He will be removed in 39, and when he goes back to to Rome, uh, hoping that he will curry favor with the emperor, that the emperor dies. Gaius Caligula becomes emperor. He doesn't care anything about him, but about himself, and so he then uh, removes uh, Herod Antipas from power and exiles him to to Lyon in Gaul which is modern France, there Archelaus, I mean, Antipas and his wife die in abject poverty. They are the ones who have been complicit in the death of John the Baptist and Jesus, so uh, God takes care of them. John 18.29, Pilate comes out and he says, what accusation is this that you bring against him? And their accusation is one of of treason, as I have said. So he um, tells them, you take him, you judge him according to the to your law. And their reply is, well, we have, but we don't have the authority to put him to death. So you must make that decision is basically what they are saying. And John then inserts his statement in verse 32, that this was done that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled uh, of which he spoke. We've already reviewed those those prophecies that Jesus made, signifying what kind of death he would die. At that point, Pilate goes back into the praetorium, and he goes to Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And while he and during this time, there are continued accusations made by the chief priests and the elders. And as long as they are making these accusations, Jesus doesn't react. He doesn't try to defend himself. Uh, when you have people who are brought up on a charge, especially a false charge, what their typical response is, is to react and, and protest their innocence and try to bring out evidence. Jesus is just silent which is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 53 that like a lamb before his shears was dumb, so Jesus opened not his mouth. So Pilate then is trying to engage Jesus in terms of these charges, and he says, do you answer nothing? Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But again, Matthew tells us he did not answer a single word. Now, I'm wrestling with how to put this together because what happens is that John tells us that there's a conversation with Pilate at this time. It probably is, I thought about this late in my preparation uh, today, that this may have occurred before the other conversation. This may be the first thing that Pilate does is he comes in and they have this conversation and then he goes back out. They have their accusation and then he comes in and that is a point when Jesus is not 
answering anything. But in this conversation, which probably came earlier, Jesus says to Pilate, are you speaking for yourself about this, that is his claim that he's the king, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you, there's that word paradidomi again, have delivered you to me, what have you done? And so Jesus responds in terms of the charge of being a king. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Now, this is a favorite verse from those who are amillennial, those who do not believe in a literal messianic earthly reign of Jesus on the earth. And they misinterpret this passage because Jesus is just saying at this point, because the kingdom has been postponed, that he is not there to establish his kingdom at this point. And if he were, then his servants would fight. He is not saying it's wrong to fight because there will be fighting when Jesus returns at the second coming and he will slay the armies of the Antichrist as well as the destroying the false prophet and the Antichrist. And so he is not saying that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He's not saying his kingdom is an invisible kingdom. He is saying that it is not part of the cosmos, that is Satan's domain. And then Pilate asks him in verse 37, Are you a king then? And Jesus says, You say rightly that I am a king. So he affirms that. He says, for this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. At this point, Pilate says, what is truth? How can you make a claim to truth? He just dismisses this whole idea. That is the secular response to the gospel. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and he denies it. Now, what's interesting about this particular verse is that it is a part of a very small fragment. You see the picture up there on the screen. This is a picture of uh, what is called Papyrus P-52. It is kept in the John Rylands um, in the John Rylands Library in Manchester, in England. And this is the oldest uh, inscription that we have of the um, of the New Testament. It is typically dated by conservatives at approximately 117 uh, A.D., which is probably within 30 years of its writing. Now, what's interesting about this is that just this last week, I was watching one of those shows on one of the history channels, and they're talking. They they brought they're talking about Jesus and their and and the trials and everything, and they brought this up, and they said that this was dated at 200. Now, that's important for liberalism. Because liberal theology says that the Gospels weren't written in the first century by eyewitnesses. They were written a 100 to 150 years later, John being the last one, and it was written not in 85 or 90, but it was written in 160. So they've got to 
post-dated. Now, uh, I was looking at this book I recommended after we came back from pre-trib, new book out on uh, biblical archaeology by Randy Price and Wayne House. And you can get, a, I understand, a good Christmas savings on it if you go to Amazon. And it's laid out in the order of the books of the Bible. And uh, P52 is, is very well known here. And they, they bring out various things related to this that the, if you study the, uh, the writing, the way in which the letters are written, that this went out of vogue by 130. And based on other uh, factors that dating this somewhere between 110 and 125 is what you have to do based on the style of writing. So this is uh, a very early witness to the Gospels. And so Pilate is being very skeptical of truth as he is talking to the one who is the truth. But when he gets done, he goes out. And he recognizes that this man has not done anything. Luke 23, 4, Pilate goes to the chief priest in the crowd and says, I find no fault with this man. This concludes that first, um, that first trial. And then we come to the fifth trial, which is the trial of Herod Antipas. Now that's something we can cover very quickly. What happens is, uh, as soon as he finds out, according to Luke, Luke 23, uh, 7 to 12 is the only uh, scripture that talks about this trial. As soon as he comes out, uh, as soon as he hears that Jesus was from Galilee, he says, oh, he's in Herod's jurisdiction. This isn't my problem. I'm going to toss it to Herod. And so he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, he's they're right close together. Probably he's staying in the Herodium uh, palace at that point. And so when Herod saw Jesus, he's all excited. He's curious like a lot of people are about Jesus, but they're not really uh, that interested. They just want to have their uh, uh, imagination stimulated or have a nice theological discourse and have their, their uh, uh, stimulating debate, but they really don't want to uh, learn about Jesus. He's just hoping Jesus will perform some miracle. But he questions Jesus, but Jesus says nothing according to Luke 23, 9. So then in the conclusion, we're told in Luke 23, 11, Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt. They mocked him. They're the ones who brought the robe out that they put around Jesus, and then they send him back to Pilate. He's passing the buck again. And then Luke comments, that day they both became close friends. You know the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they see Jesus as a common enemy, and so they uh, become friends over this particular incident. So the question that comes to everyone when we read this, as they are attempting to decide who Jesus is, everyone needs to make that decision because that is the most important decision any of us will ever make. Who is Jesus? He's either the Son of God, the Son of Man who came to die for the sins of the world, and you have eternal life by simply believing in him, or he is the greatest fraud that ever existed. Those are the only options. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to read through the Gospels, to come to understand what transpired in these two uh, trials, the one, the fourth trial before Pilate, the fifth trial before Herod, to come to understand the hostility that the world has to your truth, the hostility that religion has, the hostility secularism has to the uh, truth of your existence, the truth of your word, and the truth of the claims of Jesus to be the only truth, to be the one who came to die on the cross and the only way to you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Father, we pray that if anyone is listening to this lesson, is here today or listening and they've never trusted Jesus as Savior, that that God the Holy Spirit would make this very clear to them and they would realize that their eternal destiny depends upon this one decision. Jesus has died for you. He has paid the penalty for you. The only thing necessary is for you to accept that as a free gift, to believe in Jesus, and you will have eternal life. And for us as believers, we have... Uh, more confirmatory evidence, as Luke tells us in Acts 1, Jesus uh, gave the disciples many convincing proofs. And we know from our study of your word that it is absolute truth and that we can base everything in our lives upon your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.